All right, what is the origin of life? Well, if we look at a cell, a cell is a highly complex system. A cell is a factory. A cell is a, is a huge machine. Uh, there is so much going on in a cell, so much building. There are these tubules which form, which pass materials across a cell. There are areas where, where energy is generated in the cell. There are areas where, where information is stored in the cell, both, both, both uh, in some of the organelles and, and in the nucleus. And there, there's, there's, there's pieces going through the membrane of the cell. This is not an easy system to build. Nobody has ever built a cell. But if we want to think about origin of life, we've got to make one of these. Or we've got to figure out how one of these can be made. How would you build one of these systems? How would you build a cell? This is what origin of life is. It is prebiotic. It is abiogenesis, before biology. Before biology, how could one make something like this? This is the first step that has to be made if you're going to think about origin of life. This is long before evolution, long before any biology. How could you take raw chemicals that would be on a prehistoric earth and build one of these? And if you say, well, life was seeded here by some aliens, that's fine. I'm fine with that. It's just, well, how was that life formed? You have to somehow come up with a way on how life originally formed. That's what origin of life is. It's a very hard thing to think about. So origin of life. Molecules don't care about life. Organisms care about life. Chemistry, on the contrary, is utterly indifferent to life. Without a biologically derived entity acting upon them, molecules have never been shown to evolve toward life. Never. Molecules do not evolve toward life. If you want to push molecules in a certain arrangement, you can do that, but generally you have a biological organism working on them like a human working on molecules to try to push them in that direction. But we'll see how effective humans have been in accomplishing that. <clears throat> Almost every chemical synthesis experiment in origin of life research can be summed up by a protocol analogous to this. So if you, whatever you look at for any of the experiments to make the molecules... This is, this is what, 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 what they've come up with. You purchase some chemicals, generally in high purity, from a chemical company. You mix those chemicals together in water in high concentrations or in a specific order under some set of carefully devised conditions in a modern laboratory. Then you obtain a mixture of compounds that re have a resemblance to one or more of the four basic classes of chemicals, carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino acids, and lipids. Those are the four classes of chemicals that we need for life as we know it. Then you publish a paper making some bold assertion about origin of life from those functionless, crude mixtures of stereochemically scrambled intermediates, much like Miller did in 1952, 66 years ago. You engage then the ever-gullible press to dial up the knob of unjustified extrapolation, watch the mesmerized layperson exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life formed, and then you encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into a cell, which then emerge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. And that is what we teach our students. Is that what we know? Let's take a look. Here's the synthesis problem. Molecules that compose living systems almost always show homochirality. That means you have one enantiomer and not the other. When you're building a molecular system, you need constant redesigns which take you back to step one. Anybody who has done synthesis, ab initio synthesis, understand you get to a certain point, you go, this is not going to work. You have to go redesign and go back to step one. It's often impossible to remove a moiety once it's been added to a molecule. 
So say it took you 200 million years for nature to build up to a certain point. You go, go uh-oh, put a methyl group there. That's not going to work with a methyl group. Well, go back to step one. Oh, okay, I'll do that, but I don't know how to go back because I never kept a laboratory notebook. How do you go back? How do you start again? And it doesn't know to stop. It doesn't know why to stop because there's no targeted goal. The synthetic reactions don't know how to stop their current course of progression or why to stop. There's no target. It's not like, I think I'll build a cell these next few billion years. It doesn't know that. It doesn't have a brain. Imagine trying to make something and you have no target. Just go explore. I have something in mind for you to make, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Imagine how hard that would be. That's exactly what origin of life is on a prehistoric earth. Time. Some people say, well, you have so much time. Time's your enemy. Time, although claimed to be the great savior of abiogenesis, can actually be the enemy. For example, carbohydrates are the kinetic product. They caramelize. They undergo the Kanazaro reaction where they, they split apart. Anybody who makes carbohydrates, you have to stop that reaction right after you've made that aldol product that you want. Or else you get retroaldol reactions or you get branching aldol reactions. So these are not thermodynamic products. They're kinetic products, meaning that you have to stop them. How does nature know how to stop? You say, time solves this. No, time is the enemy when you're making kinetic products. This is what we're up against. A prebiotic system does not have the ability to purify structures. If you can't do purification, what happens is you end up making things that, are, that aren't useful. Those things that aren't useful fill up the system and they will consume your reagents. You have to be able to purify. Any chemist knows that you can't be working with lots of impurities in there because it takes you in different directions and it consumes your starting material and you build up mess. Uh, reagent order addition is essential. Remember, you have to add reagent A, then B, then C. If you add A, then C, it doesn't work. That's how organic chemistry works. You have to have addition sequence. So how does this happen when there's no brain? Well, you, well this pool, you know, something came in from here, and then something came in from there, and then the third thing. Fine, I'm okay with that. But it's not three times. You have to do that like thousands and thousands of times. Just in the right addition order, everything's gone. The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light or no light, pH, atmospheric gases or no gases have to be carefully controlled in order to build complex molecular structures. The characterization at each step is essential for the chemist, but hard in a prebiotic system to consider because it knows nothing about molecular structure. You can't do synthesis without knowing what you got. Characterization is hard. So how does biology do this? Well, you have an enzyme where... Something will fit into this, and it says, yes, that's the right thing. And when nothing fit, it doesn't fit in and it's the wrong thing, you have other enzymes that chop that thing up and get rid of it very quickly for you. But you have to have purification. But remember, before the enzymes, prebiotic world, how did you do purification? How did you do characterization? How did you know that that was the right thing or the wrong thing? You don't know because you don't even know the target you're going toward. Nature keeps no laboratory notebook, so it can't go back for more material. This is the biggest killer, I think, mass transfer problem. Anybody who has done multi-step organic synthesis, anybody who has done this will tell you, you take some starting material and, and you start with, a, say, say, a half a kilogram of material and you go five steps and now you have two milligrams of material. So now you have to bring up more starting material from the rear. 
Well, how does nature do that when it never kept a laboratory notebook to know how to bring up more than it needs? It just spent 400 million years getting here. And now you say, oh, we'll just bring up more starting material. Use whatever procedure you used previously. But there's no laboratory notebook. They have no idea how these chemicals were made. This is a part of the, the nanocar synthesis, the motor part. If you just look at this reaction, it was at 5 degrees, then minus 10, mi minus 10 to minus 15 degrees, then minus 50 degrees, and, and, and uh, uh, here, you, here you have uh, 130 degrees, here you have 60 degrees. So why do we warm and cool all these reactions? Why do we do this? Just for the fun of it? Like doing that? No, because you have to do that for that particular reaction step. Nature is going to have to do the same thing. You have to warm some reactions, you have to cool some reactions. How does it know how to do this? This is hard to think about. Here's one synthesis, just that one step, to an oven-dried three-neck round-bottom flask charged with a hydrozone 33. Mag sulfate in this amount was added, and also dichloromethane. To this suspension was added manganese oxide at approximately 5 degrees centigrade. The flask was immediately immersed and stirred in a cold bath re ranging from minus 15 to minus 10 for 1.5 hours. After this period, the reaction mixture was cool to minus 50. You see the specificity here? This is what you have to go through to build molecules. You have to go through this. How does nature go through this? You say, well, nature wouldn't use dichloromethane. Yeah, nature's restricted to water. Not easy to do chemistry in water. You say, well, no, there was oil. Where did the oil come from? Remember, there were no dinosaurs yet. Where, where, where no organic matter decomposed. You, you're restricted to water. You try doing organic chemistry in water, it's very, very hard. And this is what it was restricted to. You do have to do characterization. So we use this tool called NMR, which many of you use, and you do this characterization and you, and you see these effects. So how do we describe to the world that we got something so that they know that we got what we claim we've got. Well, what you do is you do NMR, and then you describe that for the world because you have to describe the molecule that you have. So here's the description. A combination of one deuterium, of deuterium proton, C13, depth 135, and you go through all the different details. And you're not done there. I mean, it didn't stop there. There's page two. And you say, well, nature doesn't have to do that. Oh, nature has to do this all the time. It characterizes everything all the time. Natural systems characterize everything. They don't use an NMR, but it uses something just as sophisticated, but if not more so. And whatever is doing the characterization is generally more complex than the system that it's characterizing. It has to characterize it. It has to have that piece of information. Characterization is a hard thing. In this paper on the synthesis of these nanocars, and, and Victor Garcia is here, and Larry Alemany did a lot of this characterization uh, determination for us, it had 281 supplemental pages just of characterization data. Just like that small print I showed you, 281 pages of that. Just to explain to the world, convince the world that we got what we said we got. Characterization is hard. How do you do this on a prebiotic earth? This first nanomachine that we made, this first nanocar, had the motor, and the motor rotated at 1.8 revolutions per hour. Uh-oh, that didn't work very well. So all we have to do is pull out that sulfur, and now it rotates at 3 million rotations per second. That's better. So how do you get rid of that sulfur? Well, you just erase it. There is no chemical way to do that. 
None. None even existing today how to pull out that sulfur atom. So how do you do that? You go back to the beginning. You go back to the beginning. But remember, it took us a billion years to get here. Now you've got to go back to the beginning because it doesn't work. Same thing in a natural system. If it doesn't work, what do you do? And it doesn't even know when it works because it doesn't know what working is. It has no target. <clears throat> Once you have the chemicals, let's say you, you, you have the chemicals, now you have the assembly problem. How do you assemble these into a cell? Okay, I, I, give, you the, I, I give you the four classes of chemicals. Make me a cell, okay? How do you do it? Well, a protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. Most so-called protocell assembly experiments in original life research can be summed up by a protocol analogous to this. You purchase homochiral diacyl lipids from a chemical company or synthesize stereochemically scrambled lipids from smaller molecules. Add those lipids to water and observe a small amount of it. Ah, uh, I'm sorry, there's an error. A small amount of it uh, um, to form the simple and expected thermodynamically driven assembly of those lipids into synthetic bilayer vesicles upon agitation. So normally you get these sheets, these lamella, and you have to put this through shear. A small number of them will form a vesicle without going through shear. But if you put it through shear, you can get more of these vesicles forming. And sometimes these vesicles will engulf something. You might put nucleic acids in there and they'll engulf them. Then you publish a paper claiming that a synthetic vesicle is a protocell and suggestive of early forms of cellular life. You engage the media to ramp up the hype and watch the lay person be misled. <clears throat> All right, let's look just at the cell membrane, the thing that you think is the easiest part of the cell to make, the membrane, which thermodynamically assembles, right? Wrong. Researchers have identified thousands of different lipid structures in cell membranes. When making synthetic vesicles, synthetic lipid bilayer membranes, mixtures with monoacial lipids can destabilize the system. So how were these avoided in nature? You have need a diacyl lipid. Well, you're going to get some monoacial lipids there, too. If you have monoacial ones, that's going to destabilize that system. Lipid bilayers surround subcellular organelles, not just the outside, all the organelles, or the nuclei, the mitochondria, so, each of them having their own microsystem assemblies. Each has their own lipid composition, different from the host uh, vesicle. The lipid bilayers have a non-symmetric distribution. This top layer is different than the bottom layer. When you make synthetic ones, they're always the same. How do you make them different? We have no idea. We have no idea. Without enzymes to flip some of those, we have no idea. Protein lipid complexes are, required, are the required passive transport sites and active pumps for passage of ions and molecules through the bilayer membranes, often with high specificity. So you have these proton, protein pumps that allow certain analytes in, certain analytes out. Allow certain ions in, certain ions out. Without those, it doesn't work. Humans don't put those in their little protocell vesicles. All lipids have a vast number of polycarbohydrate appendages. That's these things hanging off. But it's covered in these things. These are essential for cell regulation. Consider just the hexamer of a carbohydrate. Let's at first consider the hexamer of just, say, the nucleotide base, the A base. How many ways can you hook six of those bases together? One way. A, 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 A. That's it. 
Well, what if you had 6-D-pyranosis, just the simple carbohydrate D-pyranose? You could hook that, those together. Over 1 trillion constitutional and stereochemical isomers could be made. Over 1 trillion from just 6 of one type, a singular type of sugar. How do you get those hooked up the right way? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Enzymes know how to do it. But remember, this is pre-enzyme world. We just need the carbon. How do you hook? And if it's not hooked up right, the cell dies. Eliminating any class of carbohydrate from an organism results in its death. How did those get on the cell surface? None of the, none of the artificial proto, these protocells have those. I wonder why. Because you can't do it. You can't make them. So how do origin of life researchers address this problem? They don't. The interactomes, the non-covalent interactive connectivity within a functioning cell. Nobody knows how a viable cell emerges from the massive combinatorial complexity of its molecular components. And of course, nobody has ever synthetically mimicked it. An interactome is the whole set of molecular interactions in a particular cell. If one merely considers all the protein-protein interactome combinations in just a single yeast cell, the result is an estimated 10 to the 79 trillion combinations. Uh, 10, 10 to the 79 billion combinations. 10 to the 79 billion. All right, so how big is 10 to the 79 billion? Well, the number of estimated particles in the universe is 10 to the 90. That's a one with 90 zeros after it. That's how many particles there are in the universe. This is the number of combinations in a single yeast cell of ordering alignment between the different proteins. You say, well, that's not important. Oh, that's absolutely important. The non-covalent interactions between molecules is, it, those non-covalent interactions allow information to be processed through them through, through electrostatic potentials, which are traveling at the speed of light. 10 to the 79 billion. That's one with 79 billion zeros after it. That's not my calculation. That's these folks from Johns Hopkins and, and University of Brussels. How do these order? And that's why when a cell divides, it collapses down and takes that information and splits it between the two cells. You don't dehydrate these things and rehydrate and have these come together again. That life, that life is hard to mimic. Proto-turkeys. The origin of life protocell assembly is akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, adding a gallon of turkey broth, warming, sticking in a few feathers, and suggesting that a live turkey will eventually come gobbling out if given enough time, or that a proto-turkey or extant turkey has been synthesized. That's what origin of life assembly experiments give you. That bother you? That's what they're giving us. And people presume that we scientists know how life was formed. That's what they presume. You know that's not true. But the people out there don't. They presume that we know. So how close have researchers come to making an artificial cell? Well, November, this, less than one month ago, this paper came out, so, so November 19th, this was published as a prelude to what was coming out in Nature Communications. It, it, it had just appeared. So in Science, the journal Science, everybody likes science, right? Biologists create the most lifelike artificial cell yet. All right, so what is the most lifelike artificial cell according to the journal Science? Well, they're citing this article which came out in Nature Communications in, in November, 
uh, called Communication and Quorum Sensing in Non-Living Mimics of Eukaryotic Cells. So let's look at that paper. Let's see how close we are to making a cell. Let's take a look. Semiporous microcapsules made of plastic from acrylate polymerization, plastic, mind you, containing clay were prepared using modern microfluidic techniques that are done within fabricated devices. Clay has a high affinity for binding DNA because of its charge, so when DNA was then added to the solution, it diffused through the semi-porous plastic microcapsule and bound to the clay. The requisite ribosomes, RNA, enzymes, and reagents were similarly purchased or extracted from living systems, added to the medium, and those were permitted to diffuse into the plastic microcapsule. The expected chemical reactions ensued, resulting in protein synthesis. The RNA and newly formed proteins could diffuse out of the plastic microcapsules to other nearby semi-porous plastic capsules that had been similarly prepared, and the nearer the neighboring plastic microcapsule was to the original, the more exchange of the reagent between them took place. This diffusion between nearby plastic capsules was termed quorum, termed quorum sensing. Relying on standard local concentration gradients where the nearer neighbors receive more of the leached material. The chemistry of the exogenously added reagents will work regardless of the container, whether it be plastic, semi-porous microcapsule, or if it's in a test tube, or if it's in a large industrial-scale production tank. The chemistry is going to work. While the experimental design is clever and exciting... The actual chemical synthesis is unremarkable, and it's expected based on the purchased bioextracted chemicals that were added. It's done every day in laboratories and industries around the world. So it's far from the press-hyped claim of, quote, gene expression and communication rivaling that of living cells, unquote. There's also no, there's no rivalry here. Further, one might arguably agree these are indeed, quote, the most lifelike artificial cells yet, unquote. But that only serves to underscore the point. Nobody has ever yet come close to generating the workings of life. That doesn't mean they won't come close someday. I'm just telling you, we're far from that day. That's all I'm here to say. We're far from that day. And people out there think we understand this. Information. Critical for life is the origin of information, DNA or RNA. The information is primary and the matter is secondary. Everything we've talked about, the carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins, that's the matter. That's secondary. We don't know how to make any of that, nor do we know how to assemble it, but that's secondary. Primary is information. You have to have the code. Just having the nucleic acids, even, in, even if you could hook them together, you have to have the code. What's the code that's going to generate the proteins that are going to build the structure? Nobody knows where the information came from. So when I generate information in my mind, I type this on my, on, on my computer, it goes into DRAM, and then I hit save, it goes into flash memory. And then I, I, I send it out to the web, so it goes now through an RF wave to some box on the wall, and then it goes through a wire to a server farm, and gets embedded in flash memory in a server farm. You see all the different mediums on which that information was? Same information, stored on different mediums. We have the medium. Essential is the information. Where does the code come from? Nobody knows. Nobody. 
Now, try to build a cell, even hypothetically. Let's hypothetically build a cell. Take a dream team. All your best professors, all the people, best team. A dream team cannot make a living cell if given all the chemicals in homochiral form and the informational code. I'm not just going to give you the chemicals. You tell me what order you want the DNA in, I'll give you that. Now assemble a cell for me. Can you do it? No, you can't. Nobody can. Synthetic cells, this, they were called this in 2010, Craig Venter's team copied an existing bacterial genome and transplanted it into another cell. He had an existing cell. He took the genome from another one and he put it into that one. In 2016, he did something similar, but he removed all but 47, 473 of the genes from a natural gene, genome and transplanted that into another cell. So if I, if, if, if I buy two cars, I buy, I, I buy say, say, say I buy two Ferraris, and I take the computer box out of one, and I put it in the other one, can I say, hey, I made that Ferrari? I made it. <laughs> okay. Um, so so this, is, this is what synthetic cell is. But the world out there thinks that scientists have made cells. All right, fool's gold. Alchemists learned that you could add sulfur to different elements and the elements will become yellow and then gold looking. They were trying to change one element into another, one element into gold. Now we know now the only way to do that is to change the number of protons. And there you need some nuclear process which is very expensive but it can be done. But you can add sulfur to any element you want all day long and it is not going to turn into gold even though it might look like gold now they knew they didn't have gold it didn't have the same ductility it didn't have the same melting point but don't you think the alchemist community would have said would have said at least we're on the right track look at it we're on the right track no you're not on the right track for 66 years since Miller-Urey, which was an amazing experiment where they took simple organic compounds and they put electrical discharge over it for several weeks and they got some simple amino acids, none of them in, in Cairo, but that's an amazing experiment. For 66 years, we've not gone any further. Think of what's happened in 66 years. We got the structure of DNA. We know how to manipulate this thing. We've got, we've got, we can pull out certain segments and put in other segments. We've got the internet. We've got internet connectivity. We've got satellite connectivity. We have all of this going on. 66 years, all of this has happened. What's happened in origin of life research? Nothing. But these hyped up things as if we understand something about life and we don't. So here's what's written in a book that's often read, What is Life? Investigating the Nature of Life in the Age of Synthetic Biology by, by uh, Regis. Here's what he writes. Life began with little bags of garbage, random assortments of molecules doing some crude kind of metabolism. That is stage one. The garbage bags grow and occasionally split into two, and the ones that grow and split fastest win. That's what he writes for Origin of Life, and that's what's propagated to the world. Few Origin of Life researchers would state it so shamelessly. Nonetheless, the little bags of garbage are precisely what they've been making. The little bags of garbage have no more resemblance to living cells than a big bag of garbage resembles a horse. All right, so how did life begin? That's from nature. This is from nature. This year, written in nature by Jack uh, Sostak, a Nobel laureate. Here's what he wrote to explain to us where life came from. Hey, I'm interested. What did he say here? 
The early atmosphere had no oxygen. It consisted mainly of nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and smaller amounts of hydrogen, water, and methane. Lightning, asteroids, impacts, UV light from the sun acted on the atmosphere to generate hydrogen cyanide, a compound of hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen. Raining into volcanic or crater, -like, crater lakes, the cyanide reacted with iron brought up by water circulating through rocks. The resulting iron cyanide compounds accumulated over time, building up into a concentrated stew of reactive chemicals. Life as we know it requires RNA. Some scientists believe that RNA emerged directly from these reactive chemicals, nudged along by dynamic forces in the environment. Put that on an exam for synthesis and see what you get. Nucleotides, the building blocks of RNA, eventually formed, then joined together to make strands of RNA. Some stages in this process are still not well understood. Once RNA was made, some strands of it became enclosed within tiny vesicles formed by the spontaneous assembly of fatty acid lipids in the membranes, creating the first protocells. As the membranes incorporated more fatty acids, they grew and divided. At the same time, internal chemical reactions drove replication of the encapsulated RNA. You think he left out some details there? And here is the reaction chemistry that is shown for this. Simple sugars... Cyanide derivatives, UV light drove conversion of cyanide into simple sugars. I don't know how many organic chemists are here, but I don't know a simple sugar that looks like this. This is in nature. This year, this is not an eighth grade textbook. There is phosphate. Okay, I can recognize that as phosphate. And boom, how did that happen? How do you do that? Phosphate catalyzed chemical reactions between these sugars and cyanide derivatives. You got heat here, UV light there, and boom, an RNA nucleotide. You got your sugar, you got your base, and they're hooked together. In the presence of UV light and phosphate, RNA nucleotides were formed. That's what's written for people to believe. I'm beginning to see some agreement as of yesterday. Yesterday, this article appeared in Nature Communications. And he says... Experiments in the field of prebiotic chemistry strive to reenact what may have happened when life arose from inanimate material. How often human intervention was needed to obtain a specific result in their studies is worth reporting. Oh, yeah, you bet it is. <laughs> he says, such a pure such pure chemical scenario is unrealistic pre prebiotically but necessary. Further, the ideal experiment does not involve any human intervention. Remember that. The ideal experiment shouldn't involve any human intervention. Think about the exquisite exactness that's done. So here's an article from Nature Chemistry. And, and think about the exquisite... This is by John Sutherland's group from Cambridge. And, and here, here's some of what he does. He, he, he takes some reactions at 60 degrees, others at 100. Then he'll make a tiny little bit of something. And then he'll say, well, we'll make it now the same thing, but using normal organic reactions and Lawson's reagent, all these synthetic things. Because just to simplify the handling procedures... Uh, and then he adjusts the pH. So here's a simple route that he said. The preparation of cyanoacetylene on copper one was suggested as a way to conveniently prepare and store it for use when needed. He's saying this is what happens in nature. Copper chloride was mixed, but this is what he did in his lab now, was mixed with KCl to generate the Newland catalyst, potassium copper chloride, at 70 degrees. Then a separately generated source of acetylene gas was prepared from calcium car carbide and water. The gas was bubbled through the Newland catalyst to prepare acrylonitrile, an unstable molecule that needs proper isolation and storage to inhibit its polymerization. You try to make acrylonitrile, 
That thing's going to, you just look at it, it polymerizes if you don't have a stabilizer in there. Which was then treated with potassium cyanide for one hour. Then five equivalents of ammonia as a 13 molar ammonia ammonium solution adjusted to pH 9.2 with sodium hydroxide to generate the desired aminopropylonitrile. All of these reactions were executed in separate clean glass, clean vessels, properly isolated prior to proceeding to the next reaction. This is a sampling of what was done, just to make precursors to a few molecules within the building block class, none of them with control of stereochemistry. Do you think there was any human intervention here? You try to duplicate this in your lab, unless you're a very experienced chemist, this is hard to do. There's an even higher level extrapolation in this paper. He says that all cellular subsystems could have arisen simultaneously through common chemistry. Are you kidding me? All cellular subsystems arise simultaneously through common chemistry? And that, that raises the level of, pre, of supposition from mere molecule types to now complex su cellular subsystems where molecules are working in concert toward a common functional goal. This is a remarkably higher level extrapolation that pains not only the synthetic chemists, but those involved in nanosystems and molecular device research. Compositions of a few molecule types, or even all of them, do not constitute a cellular subsystem. It is essential to emphasize that the authors prepared precursors, not even the actual molecules, but only precursors to these molecules. I mean, think of what, what he's saying here. This is published in Nature, Nature Chemistry. Are we to believe this? People, I'm telling you, graduate students read this and believe it. Because if you stand up here and say this like me, people get upset with you. And our graduate students believe this. And those who aren't trained in synthetic chemistry and nanosystems believe this. Because it's written in nature. You think there's a problem there? In 1775, the French Academy in Paris refused to entertain any further proposals for perpetual motion machines. The devices just did not work as advertised. The mature science of thermodynamics, which gave us theoretical account for why the perpetuum mobile schemes failed, lay about 100 years in the future. Likewise, origin of life research seems sadly adrift, and its inability to advance bears witness to that fact. So what am I calling for? A change is warranted, the man's addressing hurdles, such as the origin of life's code, routes to complex assembly and interactomes that are essential to cellular functioning, and mass throughput in synthesis to provide requisite quantities of molecules in their homochiral forms. Until we can do things like that, which are fundamental, I think we should have a moratorium, which means a temporary cessation on funding for origin of life research, until we can outline what are the targets here. 66 years should tell us what we're doing isn't working. And you may say, well, let them go. Let them go. You, you do this yourself. Let them go. Why let them go? They're not getting anywhere. Wouldn't it be better for you to have that money to do something more constructive in your lab? You get somewhere at least. All right. I'll, we'll go into evolution now. The frustration of the evolutionist toward me is this, that I signed a statement in 2001 that says we are skeptical of the claims of the random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. I signed that statement, came to me as a quick email. I said, sure, I can agree to that. Who wouldn't agree to something that, that uh, we, sh we should encourage that there's careful examination? No, 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 no. We shouldn't encourage careful examination. This is a fact. Why, 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 why examine it? It's already a fact. It's already established. People are so upset with me for signing this. 
And they say, well, you know, in 2005, that was used in a Dover trial to try to bring creationism into school. I said, how can I be blamed for that? I didn't know that it was going to be used for that. That statement in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with the statement. If somebody steals your car and you go, you go into, uh, you go rob a bank, if they go rob a bank with it, are you responsible for that? So this statement has become known as the scientific descent from Darwinism. I'll take your questions right at the end because this is being filmed, so I'll, I'll take all the questions. I'll stay here until you're done asking questions. Scientific descent from Darwinism. In 2016, I set out on a personal mission to engage with biologists, philosophers of science, mathematicians, and geneticists in order to better understand evolution. Here's some of the things that I learned. So I'm going to take you through what I learned. I should be able to understand this, right? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm chemically adept, all right? I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm, I'm not a biologist, but I should be able to understand it. If evolution is that simple, I should be able to understand it. Now, let's categorize evolution. We do evolution in labs all the time. You do, you, you, you do directed evolution all the time. I'm talking about evolution of a complex system, and I'll get more specific into that. Darwinian theory has already been debunked by the biologists. This is what they tell me themselves. Many biologists suggest that. And this is a quote from the things they told me. Random mutation and natural selection have long been recognized by many evolutionists themselves to be insufficient to account for the complexity of life. Neutral drift is quantitatively more important than natural selection in understanding genetic differences between organisms. Furthermore, the mechanisms of evolution and the relative importance are continuously subject to careful examination and revision so careful examination of the evidence has not been avoided. So what they say is, yeah, random mutation and natural selection, it's not about that anymore. It's about neutral drift, the small changes that occur between me and my child, my child and their child, and that child and that child. That's the thing that, that, that's dominating <clears throat> these changes. And, and, and we're always looking at the evidence. So I say, okay, then why don't you sign the dissent statement with me? If it's already been debunked by you guys, sign it with me. Evolution, this is what they tell me, quote, evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. And let me say up front, I've looked at the universal common descent theory and I can understand why those fluent in the field of genetics would be convinced by the theory of universal common descent. There's an impressive quantity and insightfulness to the work. It is remarkably well-developed theory with plenty of evidence to support it. All right? It's about the mechanisms and universal common descent. All right, let's look at, let's look at common descent versus uncommonness. Humans have about 20,000 protein-coding genes, which is only 1.5% of the DNA in the entire human genome. And it is within the 1.5% that common descent studies are primarily, though not exclusively, focused. A large-scale project instituted in 2003 by the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute called Encyclopedia of DNA Elements seeks to determine the role of the remaining 98.5% of the genome that was formerly poorly called junk DNA, but better called intergenic regions. There is ENCODE evidence that part or even much of the intergenic regions have regulatory elements that can affect gene transcription building of RNA, and then constructs of enzymes that affect biological systems. So the uncommonness is noted in the intergenic regions, not the common 1.5% protein-coding regions. Work on orphan genes casts new light on the uniqueness of genetic information. Orphan genes are considered unique to a narrow taxon, generally a species. Therefore, orphan genes are, again, markers for uncommonness the uncommon human being. Humans alone have the capacity for art, 
music, advanced communication, advanced mathematics, and religious practice, which constitute the broader organization of symbolism. Now, I just learned today that animals are, have amazing ability, but I mean, they can pick out certain things, so, so I learned that today. <laughs> Therefore, if one is intent upon a common descent model, there was a massive and presently unexplainable infusion, intrinsic or extrinsic, along the proposed very short descent pathway between Australia Pythocenes and modern humans. If it were an intrinsic infusion, then the requisite anatomical or chemical differences between the modern human brain and other hominid brains are presently indiscernible, indiscernible and unfathomable and the chemical basis of the evolutionary mechanisms for such changes is both unknown and presently immeasurable. If the infusion were extrinsic, then the materialist, evolutionist, and the non-materialist share some common ground. Now, I know this is like, like I'm, I'm coming into the, the experts of the world on this, so I don't know what I'm talking about compared to what you do. Uh, the, the mechanism problem. A body plan or ground plan is an assemblage of morphological features shared among common members of a phylum level group. This term usually applies to animals, envisions a blueprint encompassing aspects such as symmetry, segmentation, and limb deposition. Body plans have historically been considered to have evolved in a flash in the Cambrian explosion. But a more nuanced understanding of animal evolution suggests the gradual development of body plans throughout the early Paleozoic. So nobody can fathom the mechanisms for body plan change. When I talk about evolution of a complex system, this is what I mean. The mechanisms of how this can occur, a body plan change, the mechanism problem. Any massive functional change of a body part will require multiple concerted lines of variation. The same place, same time. Sure, one can suggest multiple changes ad infinitum, but the concerted requirement of multiple changes all in the same place and at the same time is impossible to chemically fathom. One day the requisite chemical basis might become apparent so that the question can be answered, but present day biology is far from providing even a chemical proposal for the functioning change, let alone a data substantiated chemical mechanism. I can never say that evolution didn't do this. I have, I have, no, other, I, I have no other way. How can I know this? All I know is that we are far from it today. And when I ask my friends, give me even a proposal on how you get change of one complex system to another. How does a complex system form? They say small changes. They say, tell me, give me some mechanism. When it comes to evolution of a complex system, evolutionary biology has been reduced to storytelling with little chemical mechanistic data to support its claims. They'll tell me one story, I present to them another, they tell me then the exact opposite story. I said, show me the mechanism. Collective cluelessness. Therefore, I don't understand the mechanisms needed to change body plans or the mechanisms along the descent pathway between Australia Pythocene brain and the modern human brains if we were indeed commonly descended as predicted by the theory of universal common descent. And nobody else understands the mechanisms either. Nobody. But unlike most, I'm saying it publicly. Collective cluelessness. Recall, quoting the biologist, evolution is both about the mechanism by which change occurs over time and the theory of universal common descent. The mechanisms are unknown and the theory of universal common descent, though robust, is being confronted by evidence that can be interpreted as uncommonness. By Project ENCODE, and by orphan genes. So further study is warranted. 
It's warranted. I'm not saying you stop this. You do it. It's warranted. So what's the problem? It's warranted. Further study is warranted because we don't have all the answers. Some vacillating so-called scientific facts that were really theories. We already considered two. Junk DNA versus intergenic DNA and its regulatory function. The complexity of life formerly dominated by random mutation and natural selection is now replaced by neutral drift as the dominant factor. Where, are there any other things that we have touted as scientists as facts that turned out, uh-oh, really weren't facts? How about does the universe have a beginning? Scientific fact changed in 1964. Used to be a steady state. The universe had no beginning. This was the prevailing view of scientists in the 1950s. Big Bang Theory has a definite beginning 13.8 billion years ago. For most cosmologists, the definite refutation came in 1964 with, with microwave background radiation. That changed in 1964. That was a fact which changed. If you, contrary to that fact, people got really upset with you. Punctuated equilibrium, scientific fact changed in 1972. Darwinian theory involves a slow, gradual change for the development of new species. Punctuated equilibrium suggests that evolutionary development is marked by isolated episodes of rapid speciation between long periods of no change. So like over a short 100,000 years, boom, there'll be a lot of change and then no change. So Eldridge and Gould proposed that the, de de the degree of gradualism commonly attributed to Charles Darwin is virtually non-existent in the fossil record and that stasis, meaning no morphological change, dominates the history of, of most fossil species. So facts can change when it's not really a fact. What killed off the dinosaurs? Scientific fact changed in 1980. It used to be climate change and then it was an asteroid impact, according to the Al Alvarez hypothesis. That changed in 1980. Uh, how long ago did dinosaurs die off, or how stable is soft tissue? Scientific fact is being questioned since 2007. The dinosaur extinction event occurred 66 million years ago, it, it, it's believed, except for some, some of the birds and, and the burrowing animals. 2007, Mary Higby Schweitzer, a paleontologist at NC State, led the group that discovered the remains of blood cells in dinosaur fossils, and later discovered soft tissue remains in Tyrannosaurus rex specimen. 2015, researchers reported finding structures similar to blood cells and collagen fibers preserved in the bone fossil of six Cretaceous dinosaur specimens, which are approximately 75 million years old. Soft tissue finds are now often occurring. A lot of things that we think we know solidly, we really don't know that solidly. So let me close. This is my last slide, and this is a lot of opinion. Ramifications of calling conjectures fact. What are the ramifications? Well, claims that mislead the patient taxpayer are unhelpful, and the public will eventually distrust scientific claims even into other fields. Uncorrected or unfounded assertions jeopardize science beyond a singular field, especially since there is mounting distrust of higher education in general. A lot of articles have been written about the distrust about people in higher education and what we're, we're pronouncing because we've not corrected things that we said were previously fact and be shown to be, shown to be wrong, and we call things that fact are fact or really conjecture. Condescending comments toward the public or a student, if they will not embrace our conjectures as facts, will lead to continued division between scientists and non-scientists, which can yield public reluctance to fund our research. They're the ones that pay for us to be here. We must tell the truth with specificity. If it is in fact if it is a fact, say it. Water is H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen. Anywhere in the universe, that is the case. You can have isotopomers, but water is H2O. If it is not a fact, say it. 
Blackballing scientists, if they bear legitimate nonconformist views, by excluding them from professional societies and academies, withholding their funding or denying them tenure, is anti-scientific and it will retard the advancement of science. We have to be very careful about the way we treat colleagues that don't go along with the status quo if they are contesting things that are conjecture and not fact. With that, I'm going to close and thank you for the invitation and I'll take all your questions.